there's a pretty good consensus that meditation helps people feel better um, in general, maybe not every person, but in general. And so the question is why? Welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhism in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson from the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we sat down with Norman Farb. Norm is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology here at the University of Toronto. In his research, he's specifically interested in how cognitive training practices like mindfulness meditation foster resilience against stress, reduce vulnerability to affective disorders, and help against depression. In his teaching, he uses a lot of body practices and teaches students to self-observe. So he's leading students in ways to manipulate their own psychology. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Norman Farb about Buddhism and contemplative science. My name is Norman Farb. I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. I'm at the Mississauga campus and I study the psychology of mental health. I study meditation and mental habits and depression vulnerability. So kind of both sides of the spectrum how people try to uh, condition themselves to be happier and also how they inadvertently become conditioned to be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> sort of what lots <laughs> people uh, flip between those things. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, and you also teach things called contemplative practices, right? You teach about contemplative practices. So what, are, in one to two sentences, what are contemplative practices? Uh, contemplative practices are a family of, of different um, techniques people use to try to change their minds sort of from the inside out. So as opposed to having someone else um, help you you know, unpack your thoughts and, and change them like in psychotherapy or by doing it through drugs or some sort of exercise program or something like that. Contemplative practices are about uh, introspection leading to, to change. Mm. So looking inwards and understanding your own mind and the workings of your own mind or maybe everyone's minds and, and using that understanding then to leverage um, acting differently than one would by default or by habit. Mm. So are they things that are open to anyone? Possible for everyone? Uh, yeah, I think anyone could engage in contemplative practices. Often they seem sort of mystical or esoteric, you know, especially in, in the West, there's always that sort of trope of the, the wise master and you have to climb a mountain somewhere to find them. But these days with uh, apps and self-help books and just drop-in meditation sessions and things like that, it's quite accessible for people to uh, dip a toe into the, the waters of introspection, as it were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is different also in calling them contemplative practices versus meditation practices or Buddhist or Buddhist practices. Yeah. What's, what's different in using the term contemplative? Uh, well, I think in the West, there's been a pretty strong effort to, maybe it's not the right word, but to kind of sanitize or um, uh, secularize um, religious practices so that they can be made sort of universally accessible. So people don't have to feel like they're violating their own religious beliefs by accidentally, you know, sipping someone else's Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. So uh, the terms contemplative practices, I think, are just a way of making it seem more generic than saying, oh, I'm doing, you know, a Buddhist spiritual tradition and someone saying, oh, but but you're a Jewish or you're a Christian and how can you do someone else's religious practice? Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a blanket term in some ways. That's a bit more of a, an inclusive umbrella term for uh, using introspection to try to um, create this, this change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Right. Um, so today I want to ask you a bit about your a graduate level course that you teach mm-hmm. um, that you've taught called the Foundations of Contemplative Science. So it's a psychology course. Mm-hmm. And what is this course constructed to teach students? Yeah, so we only teach graduate classes about once every four years. So it's not like it's a well-rehearsed class for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've only been around that circuit once. But the idea was uh, for it to be a survey type of class um, for students who are interested in this uh, nascent field. Because when I was a grad student, there was no contemplative studies in psychology or in cognitive science or anything like that. Uh, so it's supposed to be a kind of parallel track of both conceptual learning where uh, students will read papers on different topics in contemplative science. So where researchers have found some traction in trying to study this art of people studying their own minds. Um, and then the other track is an experiential track where uh, the students get to try a different meditation um, cobbled together by me that's supposed to sort of resonate with whatever we're doing on the didactic conceptual side. Um, and then the evaluation is for grad, most grad courses is something like a term paper. So they do like an academic term paper, but they also have to do a meditation diary where they reflect on their experiences doing the meditations, um, what worked for them, what didn't work for them, questions that were raised, that sort of thing. So mm. uh, to engage a little formal written con- contemplation around their contemplation. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how did you break up the course? What what was the, the structure that you gave to the topics to break up contemplative practices for them? Uh, well, as someone who swims in this sort of admittedly kind of small pool, there are just different luminaries in the in this pool already who've, who've had success publishing in mainstream journals or uh, in psychology or, or beyond as they've uh, researched the effects and mechanisms of contemplative practices. So mm-hmm. I kind of just started with like a who's who of like, you know, who's had success in getting other people to listen mm-hmm. <laughs> and that sort of So helped. who is in that pool with, with you or what are the, what, who do you find yeah, to well, be myself, the important of course, of luminaries? Course, but, yes, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and part of it also is maps across different domains of psychology. So some of the earliest, um, you know, empirical research on, on meditation was clinical research and that's really laid the groundwork. So there has to be a, a strong theme of you know, why people even care about meditation, what's the efficacy um, of meditation practices in conditions like chronic pain, depression, anxiety, and beyond. So uh, try to sample all the way from like the, the origin of you know, mindfulness-based stress structure in the West, like John mm-hmm. Kabat-Zinn publishing paper in like hospital psychiatry or something in like 1982. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of being like a paper that launched a thousand ships mm-hmm. <laughs> and it took a couple of decades to get going. Um, and that's dealing really just with like people's quality of life in chronic pain conditions and saying, well, that sort of fanned out um, chronologically into looking at anxiety and depression and depression relapse vulnerability. Um, and so talking a bit about f- evidence around there, and that's still about sort of meditation as relief of symptoms. Um, but chronologically, my understanding is that really was most of the literature for the first decade or two. And then you start seeing all these mechanisms and more specialized topic papers coming out. So I, you know, for myself, I study a lot of things around body awareness or interoception. So I'll give them a paper on interoception. When I was in grad school, um, the researcher Amishi Jha, who was trained as an attention researcher, started uh, looking at attention uh, training through meditation. So let's talk about attention. Um, mm-hmm. And then there have been. I'm sorry, what is interoception? Sorry, interoception. Interoception. Yeah, yeah so like reception, yeah. like, you know, a satellite receiver receiving something, intero, mm-hmm. the internal landscape of the body. So it's just a, fanci- a fancy way of saying, yeah, like awareness of what's going on inside your body as uh-huh. opposed to exteroception, uh, taking in information through our external sources, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, senses. 
Right. Mm-hmm. What are the ways to measure then this version of what's happening in interoception? How can you measure that in others or teach your students to look for it? Uh, yeah. So traditionally, I think the only way to measure it would be through self-report. Um, so what people describe in their own internal experience, uh, and that's true of you know most personality um, characteristics, like personality researchers uh, would look at, or mental health characteristics like happiness or suffering, usually you can't really get that much better than asking people directly. And then you can do a little bit better by that. And, and it's also resonates in some of the more traditional um, texts that I've read where you can ask other people who know the person, you know, is anything changing? How are they doing? They say they're this compassionate person. Do they help other people or are they just good at, <laughs> at talking about how compassionate they are? So you can get um, th- uh, these sort of third person reports um, and those can sort of triangulate if you give it like the gold standards, you can get three different people to rate one person and mm. you get like the shared agreement of those three people. It's probably going to be a, a pretty replicable or accurate sense of how people in general will see them. And then I'm quite interested because I come more from like a brain imaging neuroscience sort of background at trying to see whether there are more um, objective metrics of something like body awareness, which seems quite ephemeral, but you know, from neurology, for instance, there's tests to see what's the smallest distance between two points where you can still t- feel two points on your skin. So you could look mm-hmm. at uh, really standard kind of medical tests that would just test like if you're neurally intact. Um, though I found that that's not something that's that amenable to training. <laughs> you just have a certain like minimum distance between sensors on your skin. And I don't know if meditation changes that. Um, there's formal questionnaires in that kind of area. And then we do things like brain imaging and look at what happens when someone is asked to turn their attention internally compared to externally so they can have their eyes open but be asked to focus on the feeling of their breathing or a colored square on a screen. Right. And with that same you know, physical setup, we can see really big changes in brain activity and start to infer that maybe there really is something happening in terms of the flow of information uh, to support awareness. Right, so you're actually looking at parts of the brain light up or neurons firing. Yeah, yeah and we're Sorry. still doing that that research. Mm. Some pretty crazy things happen actually when you ask someone just to focus on their breath. It really turns off a lot of our, our higher cortical parts of the brain in ways that are mm. really, I think, unexpected. We're still sort of plumbing that. Interesting. And what ways um, does, what do you see happen in the brain? What are the things that, what are the kind of notable divisions for a layperson who's not familiar with brain imaging? <laughs> For paying attention to the body, like for interoception. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest thing we're seeing right now is um, that when people focus on their breathing, even in a really well-controlled experimental setup, um, you get mostly a deactivation of a lot of the higher um, or more evolutionary recent parts of our, our brain. So a lot of the brain actually starts to turn off despite the fact that they could still even be reporting on like an in-breath or out-breath. It's, it's not confounded with maybe they're just mind-wandering or falling asleep. You can get but a lot of the brain is just kind of settling down. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of the initial benefits of contemplative practice is that kind of stillness or quietness that can be achieved by focusing on a particular sensory input. I don't know if the breath is super unique compared to like your toe or sound, but because it's so central to a lot of the meditation practices that that I've studied, we often start with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also kind of may explain why there's a sort of uh, mistaken um, idea that meditation is about just completely silencing the mind because that might be one of the first benefits that people perceive for themselves when they start mm. meditating. They're like, oh, things are so noisy and now it's quiet. So 
that feels, that feels really good. And like, I'm getting it. Okay. I've got it. I'm a meditator now. And so, uh, not to say that there isn't some benefit, uh, from that, but that's clearly not, I think the, the downstream reason why people start, started focusing on their breath back in the day in terms of having broader aspirations to improve themselves and, and, uh, the people around them. Interesting. What are the later benefits that you think accrue for people? Yeah, well, I think that the traditional definitions of meditation, um, as I've been told by people who study <laughs> those things, uh, are, are, you know, mindfulness is about keeping intentions and values in mind. And so sensory anchors help us realize um, how transient any thought or interpretation might be uh, so that it can't completely disrupt um, our our focus from what we actually think is important in the world. And if we don't have that kind of anchor, we can easily get carried away in a pattern of like defensiveness or reactivity or justification and end up acting in ways that are not consonant with our values. So that's a much, um, I think, greater or a sort of bigger game to play than just like, I want my, my mind to be quiet, <laughs> right. but you can see how if, if, if things are too noisy and you're just feeling completely overwhelmed, all you can really do is try to protect yourself. Um, so getting them, having some faculty to quiet the mind or get some distance from a really negative thought or, or a really strong feeling of threat, um, might be really important in that endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, it it might be the necessary first step, but not right. Right. Necessary, but not sufficient mm -hmm. uh, for living the life you want, mm -hmm. but yeah, not getting sidetracked by the first stressor or challenge. Yeah. It seems like a good skill to have if you're up to something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this connects, you gave a wonderful public lecture a few weeks ago here at the university of Toronto. <laughs> um, and it was called getting mindfulness, right. Mm -hmm. And in that you were talking about some of what you perceive as sort of, sort of potential pitfalls of the mindfulness boom that we're seeing kind of all around us, you know, mm -hmm. on the cover of time magazine and, uh, in the marketing of candles at the dollar store, uh -huh. um, we're getting kind of, a you know, a, a focus on, that maybe the benefits of that first stage, but what, what do you, do you mean by this, the, that there's some pitfalls to kind of the, the mass marketing of mindfulness that we're seeing around us? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the, the pitfalls, quite frankly, are, are pitfalls that are being shouted out to the meditation community as opposed to pitfalls that have um, been realized internally by that community, but there are some too, so maybe I can enumerate a few of those. So I think that the big charge against the the secular mindfulness movement is that it's offering a watered down sort of ineffective capitalist driven form of training that's not really that efficacious right and um, at its best it is doing this sort of mindfulness as relief um, kind of action where you kind of quiet down the mind a bit and you're like oh that feels better and then you think oh that's the project I'm, I'm doing it right but the the consequence of only trying to self-soothe through a meditation practice is that you're not really likely to change your habits very much. If anything, you're just going to be a little more um, tolerant of current conditions. And so that that could lead to a kind of pacification of the workforce, right? It's like, oh, you're really stressed at work. Well, we could talk about changing your hours or work conditions, or you could just meditate a bit. And, and then, you know, if, if you're still feeling stressed, maybe you're just not a very good meditator. Mm -hmm. So it, it's kind of like, blames the victim in a way. Right. I and that's, that's, that's Ronald Purser's um, critique, right? Of, in that McMindfulness book. Yeah. I think that's one of the sort of central uh, attacks yeah, in McMindfulness is that it just becomes a way of, of keeping people busy instead mm -hmm. of making, uh, with, you know, making, tell, telling them it's their fault that they're getting stressed because they're, and, and so uh, you don't really get any real change. Um, and ostensibly, you know, these practices are supposed to help people 
unlock the potential for really radical change. Mm. Um, and then on the other side, there are, I think, real concerns about whether, um, you know, deep meditation practice that's fairly unstructured, unsupported by a community, by a skilled teacher, um, if these are really powerful transformative techniques, um, you know, you would want some kind of mentorship there, right? Mm -hmm. If you were working with like a set of advanced like power tools and you could uh, easily cut through like, you know, an iron bar with a saw, you wouldn't want someone just being like, hey, I got it, I've got a saw, I'm just gonna wave it around and hope good things happen, right? And so there are um, cases of people having depersonalization, derealization disorders that are associated with intense meditation practice. I think, what is derealization disorder? <laughs> so these are, I think, lesser known than depression or anxiety. But um, if you think of, you know, mood disorders often as, as getting too caught up in the story of what's going on in your life, depersonalization, derealization disorders are disorders where nothing uh, seems real. So either in depersonalization, you start feeling like you're just watching yourself going through life and you actually have no agency and no power, which is actually very distressing. Mm. Uh, and uh, derealization similarly is sort of like going through like feeling like it's just a dream and nothing really has emotional importance. Um, and you know, it's it's almost like applied nihilism. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you do because nothing really feels real. Uh, and as you kind of might imagine, if you're not personally responsible for your actions or the world isn't real, and this is gonna lead uh, to some problems, usually not people acting out and hurting other people more, just like total lack of motivation. Like someone's sitting on a couch, you say goodbye to them, you come back a few hours later and they're still sitting on the couch. It hasn't occurred to them that they ought to do something. Um, so the charge is that this is uh, unlocked sometimes by really intense or maybe not even that intense meditation practice. Um, and so that's the second charge more from within the community. I think sometimes that meditation isn't unequivocally good no matter how you use it mm -hmm. right? if it is mm -hmm. a powerful tool then it could be misused and, and we would never think that oh you can just take whatever drugs you want and nothing bad could happen but somehow people have this um pollyannish idea about meditation it's like super powerful and it can do no wrong and it feels like one of those things can't be true right <laughs> so yeah. you know that i think the jury's still out as to whether meditation is causing these um these events these psychoses and, and disorders to occur at higher than uh, base rate levels. It's all, it's really confounded. You can't assign someone to meditate until they have a psychotic break <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but at least that's, that's a second kind of concern that I think is lesser known. That's more internal to the community. Right. Mm -hmm. And you brought up also the potential danger of setting people loose without context and without community to support them mm -hmm. in practices, right? Because certainly in the, in the Buddhist context, most of the, um, higher forms of meditation were always undertaken with a lama, a guru, a teacher, um, and, you know, there to report back to and a community of potentially of people who are going through similar things. So what is different when people are set to this alone in? Yeah, I think it's an interesting tension. If you're trying to import a set of, you know, transformative contemplative techniques to the West and, and you have a sort of, um, xenophobia around other religions invading the West mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is a fine path to walk uh, in terms of saying, well, we want to let you still pursue Western values and just make you a bit happier doing it. Um, and so in that sort of enterprise uh, was this idea of stripping out the need for, you know, a, a community that's determining whether your practice is working right or not, um, whether or not you're being virtuous, all that stuff is sort of left to the culture that receives the meditation training uh, and instead you just have the bare um, elements of the attentional practices maybe with some 
attitudinal instructions about being like curious and open, but not where that curiosity and openness is supposed to lead you. Like there, there's an, a, sec, a later set of instructions about how to evaluate whether those practices are leading you in the right direction or not. And I think um, in the initial cases, when you have people who are generally coming from fairly privileged backgrounds uh, and actually have um, fairly deeply entrenched value systems, uh, but maybe uh, life got in the way, Mm-hmm. If the meditation is helping them kind of clarify in return to that um, simpler set of purpose and not be disrupted as often, it might not be that dangerous a thing to do. But in all clinical interventions, not just a meditation, you have what's this sort of efficacy drop when you move from the primary centers where interventions or therapies are developed out into the community. And I think in meditation, this is especially um, a large issue because if you start assuming that as you start clearing away negative patterns of responding that underneath it is a fully formed value system that's going to work well for people. That's a a big assumption for people who might have a history of adverse child events, um, uh, poverty, trauma, where they maybe never had that that deeper learning around like, well, here's what where meaning comes from in my life in a a healthy, sustainable, sort of wholesome way. Mm -hmm. So to then not provide that at the same time or, or subsequent to helping people strip away bad habits, again, might leave people with, with not much in terms of a sense of purpose or direction. Right. Um, so I think that's a valid concern, but it, it also does sometimes feel to me a little paternalistic. Like, well, you know, you couldn't possibly self-determine if we helped free you up. Like, you're just going to, you know, make mistakes and you need Buddhism or you need uh, community. So I, I just see kind of both mm-hmm. sides of it, right? That, that yeah, probably for some people, they, they might just be lost and they could really use a value system, but then you run into the wall of like, well, who's who's, you know, a good enough or wise enough person to tell you what that value system should be. And the Western ideology, or maybe it's a bit hubristic, is to say, like, no one is. You have to do it for yourself, and if you can't do it for yourself, there's no one better. Mm. Um, And so I I think fundamentally there's going to be that kind of tension. Right. Mm -hmm. So in your course, when you you divided up types of meditation practices for students, Uh you started with breath, Uh and then you went to body scan, progressive relaxation, sound focus, visual focus, Uh chakras, compassion, integration, loving kindness, and then you finished with transcendental. Uh So can you give us an example of how, like one of those topics, how did you actually introduce it in class and teach it and set it up for the students? Yeah, so uh, the curriculum was largely informed by my own teacher training in mindfulness-based stress reduction, where the these eight-week programs, which do seem like they have good clinical efficacy in helping people with their mood, um, and this is that same lineage that that started by by John Kabat-Zinn mm-hmm. uh, in the late seventies, early eighties with chronic pain patients. Um, there is a progression of meditations that move from focal attention uh, to something sensory like the breath or feeling in the body or maybe eventually sounds, eventually moving into noticing feelings and thoughts and moving into what we'd call more of like an open awareness or choiceless Mm -hmm. awareness where it's a very broad, non-sticky form of attention. But um, arguably you need to have that ability to focus on particular things and, and know what it feels like to focus and disengage and focus and disengage before you have a hope of staying non-sticky. So uh, the first half of the course is sort of taking people through that progression. And then the second half of the course, when we start introducing ideas like compassion, loving kindness, self-transcendence is like the, well, what's missing from just that, you know, eight week introductory course, which is mostly about um, restructuring, you know, attentional habits and building flexibility in, in the attention system. It's like, well, then where is the content? So, um, many meditation traditions try to marry 
the sort of cold teaching around attentional focus uh, with some sort of value-based practice and uh, what's had quite a lot of success in the West because it sort of fits with our hippie-derived um, uh, platitudes is our practices around love or kindness, right? Most people don't get too upset if you're like, well, we are going to teach some values. It's, it's being nice to other people, right? Or like try to love each other. I'm like, oh, that's against my religion. Like I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> so those practices seem to work quite well um, in terms of not offending people's value, existing values. And also they can, uh, one can get a lot out of them if, if there's some skillfulness developed around those practices. And then, you know, the really big picture stuff is these sort of deeper metaphysical insights around like the nature of reality and not seeing yourself as being the primary motivator of all of your own act, of your actions and sort of selflessness, and this idea of transcendence. So I want to move a bit in, into that. Um, and the chakras is just like, it's out there. I know it more from yoga. I've never really used it in my own meditation practice, but it's like, well, I can read up a bit on that and we can talk about, well, what if you localize particular values or particular capacities to different parts of your body and use those as sort of conditioned anchors um regardless of whether there's a deeper metaphysical truth about like that this particular energy is in your belly versus your chest or something mm-hmm. so yeah why not survey that too so it, it was really just the idea of having a survey but a survey that was ordered in terms of you know focal attention cultivation first then maybe broader attention and then starting to bring in particular values into that that sandbox once that the, that sandbox has been loosely scaffolded by the, the initial practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're introducing these practices to students, do you get um, any pushback? Do they feel discomfort or excitement? What is the, what is the reception from students when they're asked to take on a daily yeah. practice for a week of focusing on their chakras or... Uh, it was compassion? pretty positive. I mean, you know, my, my students were the weird of the weird because you already have grad students in psychology and they they have a couple maybe like two elective classes and then they're electing to take this like this pretentiously named foundations of contemplative science class Mm -hmm. so them to show up like arms crossed and be like i'm not going to meditate like it's it's it doesn't really happen right yeah they've chosen it (laughs) yeah it's it's really it's really an elective like there's no Mm -hmm. way they had to take this class but it was popular people are have a hunger i think for um finding things out on their own through their direct experience instead of always having to go through the lens of statistical analysis, which is very much the governing model in, in psycho- psychological science. Uh, so I don't know if everyone enjoyed every meditation or I, I guided each one <laughs> equally skillfully, but we had um, you know pretty good reception and some people found some meditations better than others and that came into the journals. Um, what were the ones that were more popular, do you think, in terms of the yeah. student reception? What worked best for the class you had? Uh, I think people in general really like the body scans. I think it gives them some, it's a good marriage of like giving people something to do. Like it's not just like just focus on this one single point and right. do nothing, which and for can you describe a body scan for us? Yeah. A body scan is, it's still a focal attention practice where you're asked to um, notice momentary sensation that you can feel right here and right now in a particular part of your body. Uh, and then we slowly guide people to move from body part to body part. So generally speaking, go toes up or from the crown of the head down. And sometimes if I'm feeling frisky, I'll start from the breath and like the, the core and then fan out to the extremities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of, you can choose your own adventure, but there is this sort of pacing of like, you're going to focus and then release, focus and release. Uh, then just like we're going to be on the breath for 20 minutes and your job is just not to freak out. And if you notice you're freaking out, it's okay. Go back to your breath. Uh, I think can be more challenging, especially in longer meditations. Um, we weren't going 
much past, I don't think we did meditations longer than 20 minutes out of like a two or three hour class. Mm -hmm. And then you advise them to do this for what, 10 minutes a day or something for a yeah, week and I journal about it? Provided either scrounged off the internet or recorded myself, guided meditations are about 10 minutes long on all okay. of the off days uh, to give some structure. But the invitation was if you feel like you already have some competency in, in this type of practice and you're more comfortable doing it without an audio recording, go for it. But you know, the, the pushes do some practice. You know, you can't know what it's going to be like unless you do it yourself. Uh, one of my graduate students, um, wrote a paper, uh, where we looked at just giving people different anchors of meditation. You know, the majority of people assume they're going to like the breath over sound or visualization, but a lot of people change their minds. Like almost mm -hmm. half people change their minds and they try different meditations. And that's, it was just a really simple example of without any broader theory, just like some things that feel better fit better and you won't know until you try mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when you taught visual focus i'm just curious because i'm fascinated by visual foci in art but did you did you supply the visual focus for people or was it something that they were to go out and find on their own uh in a classroom setting i usually wouldn't supply a focus for the experimental study because you want everything to be like kind of controlled i think we just gave people like a blue tealish like circle on a screen and said like really look at the circle now see if you can see that circle in your mind's eye and try to hold it there mm. and though there are much much more complex uh, visualization practices like construct a rose in your head and every petal every folds but you know the people who are being asked to do those practices usually have a much deeper background and building themselves up to that point so mm -hmm. we're starting with the the training wheels on i think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when you're, so when you're learning about these, when your students are examining these contemplative practices, mm -hmm. you were also um, evaluating them in terms of mechanistic lines of inquiry. So what are mechanistic lines of inquiry in your class? Yeah, so I think we're at the point now where there's a pretty good consensus that meditation helps people feel better. Um in general, maybe not every person, but in general. And so the question is why? And that's mm -hmm. so mechanistic lines of inquiry means like try to come up with some ideas for why you're getting the effects you're getting. If you find that you get this feeling of bliss and euphoria, like what's happening there? Mm -hmm. Is it just this total black box where you focus on your breath and just joy leaks in? Or is it that you realize there's like a feel, some, some change in the quality of, of your experience um, that precedes the emotional change, right? Um, so, and, and as, you know, psychology and, and med science grad students taking the course, I think they already have that sort of, um, that curiosity around like, how do, how do things work? Like, why are you, why are you asking me to do this? So is this sort of empowering them to take that a bit further and be like, yeah, ask that about each practice and, and don't be content just on, um, to just sit with, with the outcome without trying to have a deep understanding of what's going on un under the hood. Uh, and, and of course, you know, it's all subjective, but um, it gets some interesting dialogue around when people say, oh, that was not a very useful practice or, or it was a useful practice. There's almost always uh, um, a sort of lay theory underneath it around like, well, because this was helping me have some more space in my mind, it's too crowded with worry or it's not really that useful because I'm just swapping out one thing for something else and it's it's not really actually changing the way my mind is working so it's just a distraction so um yeah it's interesting to see people try to justify almost justify their experiences in a way even if um it might not actually be the true mechanism underneath it it's really 
fertile ground for brainstorming. And from that kind of brainstorming comes new research projects. We're like, okay, is there a way we could formally test this theory and see if we've got that answer right or not? If we can measure this one thing changing, does it explain a change in well-being um, or not, uh, or a change in mood? Um, and it, I think it all just comes from introspective and wondering why, as opposed to always just trying to read someone else's theory and, and absorb someone else's idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for an example of one of those was self-reference, right? What are ways that you can like test people's ability to connect, um, to themselves in at post or pre these contemplative practices? Uh, experimentally or like in the classroom, do you mean? Experimentally, uh, I guess. <laughs> that you, yeah. So mostly we've used uh, neuroimaging because asking people, because mm -hmm. the theory behind it was that a lot of the self that's been studied already is the self that is reportable um, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. Because how do you study something that someone can't report on? Uh, and so that's the whole whole problem with, with, with self-report is if, if self-report, like, so, you know, um, lexical, like language laden, conceptual descriptions of the self is the only thing you can measure, then you'll come to the conclusion that that is what the self is. But there, it, there's also the possibility that there's many other forms of identification that aren't easily expressible in words and broken up into simple concepts. And you can't, you like by definition, can't see those things if, if they're outside of verbal reportability. Uh, so we would use neuroimaging while people were engaging in self-reference where we kind of pushed them to try to be really open about their experience and not just to go into a narrative and that's sort of language-based and also to notice momentary sensations, um, uh, thoughts, feelings, but as they arise and pass. And then we would see, does the brain look different when people have some meditation training and you ask them to be kind of expansive about the sense of self? I mean, mm -hmm. everyone with or without meditation training can get into narrative descriptions of self it's how so we're uh, we're trained to relate to each other and understand ourselves and hold ourselves accountable and be responsible there's lots of good reasons to be able to do that but it it takes a certain skill it seems um in the west at least to stop doing that or not do that uh, completely and and also notice there's a lot of other things that aren't um uh, canonized or reified as as concepts about the self or, or traits or properties of the self that that are chaotic but are happening all the time so how do you get people to engage in self-reference outside of narrative? What does that mean? Like uh, The instructions are usually not that different than a meditation instruction. We'll say something like, you know, when you're watching these words on a screen, like honest, dishonest, you know, um, loyal, cowardly, whatever the, the words are, um, you read the word, but notice not just the judgment, does this describe me or not, or what do I think about this word, but also notice, is there is there any kind of response in your body? Um, are you noticing a memory sort of popping up or an uh, image or sound popping up in your head? Um, are you noticing a feeling um, in response to this word? Even if it's just like, I feel this is a good word, it's a bad word. Well, you can say that, but what does it feel like? And keep coming back to the moment and saying, what else can I notice right now? So don't let yourself be satisfied with the first explanation that comes out. Um, and so uh, when we train people to do this, well, I, I, I use an example most commonly of like stubbing your toe. I'll say, imagine you stub your toe, like what would normally happen? Like, oh, damn, I stubbed my toe. I'm so clumsy. Who put this wall here or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. uh, and saying, okay, so that's one way you could respond to stubbing your toe. Um, what would it be like, you know, if you stubbed your toe and you, you had those thoughts and you thought, oh, and what does my toe feel like right now and right now? 
and right now? Um, and is the sensation changing? Is it getting stronger or weaker? Is it really sharp and acuter? Is it a dull throbbing? Um, so we kind of I take them through like one model of how you could renegotiate that experience. And then we would ask the person, can you think of an example of toggling between just explaining what this means about you as a person versus what it feels like in the moment. And then once they can come up with an example of that, we'd be like, okay, good, you're ready for the scanner. And then uh, the, the real manipulation was had these people already done, you know, eight weeks of meditation training or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'd see, we saw in, in this 2007 paper um, that people with meditation training were able to more reliably activate these sensory input parts of their brain, even in response to trait words, which are very conceptual, like honest, dishonest, uh, um, whereas people who hadn't done the training, they could verbalize and sort of understand this conceptual distinction, but they couldn't sustain this kind of momentary sensory awareness in response to a trait word um, reliably enough for it to show up in the scanner where we're averaging like 30, 36 seconds of brain activity together at a time. Hmm. So mm-hmm. those people that had had some meditation training were actually better able to locate, to sensory like to input sensory experience where it wasn't like to think themselves into their body in a sense they were more they were more able to attend to the sensory qualities of their experience the sort of chaotic uh stream of input so Mm -hmm. i mean a lot of people are are familiar with this idea of like william james like stream of consciousness which is just like the little voice in your head talking what's going on but there's also stream of like finger sensations, string of toe sensations, string of positive feelings, stream of negative feelings, stream of itchiness. Like there's all these streams running in parallel and it's, it's convenient for us to just see one stream. Uh, and with practice, um, what we're seeing is people can flexibly alter the, the ingredients of that stream, right? They can say like, oh, I'm going to take in a little more foot sensation right now. I'm going to be open to sounds. Um, whereas by default, there's just sort of one way that we tend to um, move through any given context in terms of what information is, is salient and, and treated as relevant. Mm. So it's not that people without meditation training can't feel their toes, but can you make the toe seem important enough that it sticks around in your mind for 30 seconds? It's hard. It's a lot harder than people would think. So listeners out there, can you stick with your toe for 30 seconds? <laughs> it's different to say you can than to actually do it is what we're seeing. Yes. It might take practice. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So is it hard for you to reconcile the, the kind of your more scientific and research selves with your personal experiences in this course or in your personal experiences in meditation or, or mindfulness practice? Mm-hmm. And I guess attendant to this question too is, can you tell us kind of the short narrative of how you got here? How did you become this person who can, you know, who was trained in psychology and now as an associate professor of psychology, but mm-hmm. also teaching about research into contemplative practice. I would, mm-hmm. I would say just that the first question around, is it hard to reconcile it? I don't think so. I think, I think psychology is already a science that, that came from introspection in the first place. Um, so it's all about like, isn't that weird that our, our minds do this? I wonder if everyone does this. I wonder if there's a way to test this. I wonder if there's a way to give instructions for testing this that someone else could could also do and come to the same conclusions as me. So that's like the basis of, of science, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I think there's something here and I can replicate the conditions in which other people can see it. That's a scientific model. Um, so I, I don't think it's that hard to do that. I think the advent of of psychophysiology and neuroimaging that lets us peek under the hood as it were of what's going on in people's bodies and minds without interrupting them uh, and breaking their their experience um, uh, with an interrogation I think that's really what's opened the door to this generation of research because uh, it's not like there weren't very smart people 
in decades past who were quite interested in these topics, but they always had to move through the gate of, of self-report, uh, which has limitations we discussed already. Um, so, yeah, I think the curiosity and the yearning to understand the mind is central to most people in psychology and, and just having another lens or an angle to get at it, especially this idea that you could train the mind to have different um, constituents than it, than it has just by default or by uh, dint of um, you know history or personal conditioning is really exciting to people and it's also at the heart of why you know we might try to do psychotherapy or have positive psychology or anything like that so yeah I don't I don't think it's that that hard to reconcile actually once you get down into the nitty-gritty of what's happening and, and under the the umbrella of, of it's just more mystical and spiritual and faith-based it's supposed mm -hmm. to be very empirical even in a lot of contemplative traditions you learn patterns from your own experience uh, and from there, you can generalize things about your own conditioning and eventually generalize to understand how everyone has conditioning. And then, then you get these sort of deep metaphysical insights. So it's still a very empirical practice. It's just not about sampling other people. It's about sampling the self over and over and over again. But you could still have a very robust and reliable sample if you take enough measurements of yourself. <laughs> and then this is the question is, does it generalize or is it solipsistic? Anyway, so I, I don't think it's that that unscientific enterprise. And then as for my own path, um, yeah, I was always curious uh, um, about you know the nature of mind and, and consciousness, that was one of like the big questions that I gravitated to. Um, I thought I would get to it through artificial intelligence. I went to university for uh, computer engineering and found it just like soul destroying how much like math there was combined with like seeing what the, the job prospects wouldn't actually be doing what I wanted them to be doing. It would be more about you know building better circuits for an employer. Mm -hmm. um, so I dropped out after first year and went into psychology and philosophy instead and got really into existentialism it was really like my passion for a bunch of years and um the idea of of treating yourself as responsible for your for your life for your existence no matter what kind of thing uh kind of appealed to me um and uh I wanted to know how that could be communicated or articulated in a more general way again like getting past that idea like oh maybe it's just it's good for me doesn't mean it's it's good for other people and, and psychology and seem like a, a way to move into thinking about groups of people as opposed to just the primacy of the individual experience and so ultimately at the end of undergrad or it sort of um, renegotiated how to be a good student uh went into psychology for grad school after working in a lab for a year just sort of testing out the day-to-day -day life of it and I went into um, emotions neuroscience lab because I wanted to understand well-being and how people's habits, you know, made them happier or suffer still along those lines. And I got to do some neuroimaging and we happened to have a collaboration with Zindel Siegel who helped develop mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And I got to be the guy. Sorry, who is Zindel? Oh, Siegel. He's a professor uh, at the University of Toronto in the clinical uh, faculty, clinical psychology faculty. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um so he kind of became the shadow mentor through my PhD and mm -hmm. just started doing a lot of meditation neuroimaging studies and getting more interested in um, this idea of changing the components that build up sense of self or how emotions are, are processed. You know, like the, the word sad can mean a lot of different things and it does mean a lot of different things in the brain in terms of how it's represented in the brain and also how it's experienced. Um, and it really just became the focus of my dissertation and sort of just kind of ran with it from there. So. Uh, along the way, like I had tried a lot of things. Uh, I tried like clerking at a law firm. I'd worked in IT. Um, yeah, I, I did a lot of different things. I, I tried engineering and, and uh, I sort of just like kept leave, trying and leaving things until I found the right fit for myself. 
And I tried not to listen too much to other people telling me whether they thought it was a good idea or not. Because even doing emotions neuroscience was seen as kind of risky. But I had an advisor who was very successful being the minority of people who were doing imaging, neuroimaging, and who cared about emotions instead of just memory or sense perception, which are the two still dominant fields in neuroimaging. Mm. Um, and it's like, well, if he can hack it just by trying to be principled and you know, run a lot of extra analyses to always show that he cares about falsifying his own ideas. Like I can learn how to internalize that process and apply it to meditation. And like it has worked so far. Okay. I don't think we've necessarily had figured out how meditation works. I think in some ways we're ruling out a lot of, um, of, of explanations that people might believe are the mechanisms as opposed to actually finding the deeper mechanisms which may be ephemeral but I think that's an important part of the process sure yeah. what are the some of the myths that you've ruled out in your mind of what what some of the falsehoods we believe meditation to be doing but in fact yeah so one, not one, one thing I've been really preoccupied with or have been um, in the past decade or so is this idea that like well what are you doing meditation practice so I'm focusing on sensory awareness at least not these sort of mindfulness meditations oh okay so if i could get really really good at sensing things in my body for instance then i would be a better person right so this idea that becoming like a, a super sensor is is the training trajectory that's going to lead to well-being and it, it feel it seems to me like in many different ways of analyzing this kind of question that's not true at all mm. right so it's not about becoming a more sensitive um, sensor of like what's happening on the surface of the body. It's not really about being better at detecting your own heart rate. There's a bunch of studies showing that like long-term meditators, long-term meditators are more confident in detecting their heart rate than the average person, but they're actually not any better at it. Mm. Uh, and so on one side you could say like, oh, so it's not doing anything. But I think that, but clearly there are these sort of well-being benefits that have been replicated over and over again in the literature. So if it is doing something, but it's not because as people are getting better at, at feeling things in their body. Um, instead, what's actually happening is people are learning to value the signals they already have access to in a different way. So all this breath-focused attention is not to really make you better at detecting small differences in your breathing rate or, or qualities of breathing. It's to make you care about your breath at all because most people don't. And actually the way people answer meditation questionnaires, if they haven't been doing any type of contemplative practice is, is really different. So if you ask someone like this question, that's supposed to be a sign of, of progress in meditation. Like I don't worry too much about sensations in my body that, that, that those questions are designed to get at this idea of like of equanimity, right? So I feel something in my body. I don't let it sidetrack me or freak me out. And then therefore I'm able to stay more engaged and continue to pursue a life consonant with my values. But to the, the lay person, if you forgive the term, who doesn't do any, any meditation practice, saying, I don't care, or, I, don't, I don't worry about what's in my body means I don't care about what's in my body, right? So if you give it to the average like 19-year-old undergrad, the, the more they rate themselves high on, I don't worry about what's happening in my body, like the more, the more they're suffering usually. <laughs> is they're not treating this as a valued source of information as opposed to learning to negotiate how upsetting it is to be aware of that sensation sometimes, but also it being early important sense uh, source of information about what's causing you to react and learning about who you are as a person and how you've been conditioned. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, I think the science in some way, a contemplative scholar would be like, well, we already knew that, like no one thought it was about body awareness, but I think it, it lets us sort of start to rule out these sort of low hanging, obvious sort of in some ways, simplistic explanations for that's what meditation is doing. And I think it's important because like I, I've maybe even told you the story before, Sarah, I've been to like a, 
a conference or someone's come up to me and been like, I have complete awareness of my body all the time. Nice to meet you. And she's like, wow, that's a really socially awkward way to start the conversation. Like some people are walking around like valorizing the fact that they're constantly attending to their body as though that were the end goal, as opposed to like someone, you know, and, and someone who's, who's really just learned, like I learned to pay attention to my body signals as an important source of information so that I can live a more harmonious life. Like that kind of person would never introduce themselves as a super receiver because they realize it feels super awkward when they talk that way. So and in some ways it can feed back and help even on the teaching side to be like, you may think I'm just training you to be like a super good reporter on your breath. That's not really what we're trying to do. That's not where the action is and, and trying to even measure variation in like the ability to detect small differences in breathing rate and showing that that's not correlated with mental health. Um, I think is is an important role. So it's not just always about finding the right mechanism, but starting to rule out, you know, plausible mechanisms that really aren't where the action is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then um, just to finish up here, as you uh, continue your research now, where, what are you most excited about better understanding in the study of contemplative practices and the way they work or don't work on people? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think, you know, having had all of these interesting failures to show that it's about sensory acuity or, or things like that in meditation training, I think the real interesting frontier is more on the side of intentionality. So um, what does it mean to even think that you're trying to improve yourself or improve your mind or have better understanding in your mind? What does it mean to take on a project of, of contemplation or, or self-reflection um, we found that in undergrad classes, if we ask people, so I teach like an intro to normal psychology and taught it for like six years in a row now. Uh, sometimes we'll ask people just to write like really brief, I'm talking about like two minute diary entries on their mental health. And sometimes you get these sort of like heartbreaking, uh, wonderful responses where someone says like, I've never sat down and thought about, you know, whether I'm taking care of myself or not. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and one side again, it's not crazy to think like it's it's not that earth shattering to see this and say like oh an eighteen year old isn't worrying too much about taking care of themselves like yeah they're they're out there to have experiences and have fun and learn and hopefully not fail classes and and that sort of thing. But the flip side is like so when does that learning occur right? So you get through undergrad is is now when you start sitting back and thinking like now I'm going to be intentional around you know the consequence how I occur in the world and whether I'm taking care of myself and whether I'm being a good person. If, it, if it's not already happening when you're 18, is it magically going to happen when you're 21? Is it going to happen when you're 25? Is something really disruptive or bad going to have to happen in your life before you start to take stock and be like, oh man, should I have been actually paying attention? Is there, could I have prevented this thing from happening if I'd actually been keeping track? And the flip side is if we can get students without stressing them out too much, which is really hard because asking students to do anything often stresses them out when they're already feeling overwhelmed. But if you can get students to even do a this tiny modicum of self-reflection around self-care, even just notice how stressed they are, sometimes that can empower them to make different decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is even like from the institution saying like it's valuable, like it's important how you feel. Uh, and it's not just about exams, like in, in building that into assignments or, or in saying like there's an assignment that's just about you getting to to know yourself and how, how things are going, like is, is important as much as being able to define this psychiatric disorder or something like that, um, if we're gonna be talking about mental health. So yeah, this idea of how, how you help cultivate and just give people little nudges to be intentional, uh, I think is where a lot of the action is. And then getting back to some of my earlier phrases like or, or points about you know, the paternalism of trying to impose a value set, like 
the the value I want to impose is that people should be like trying to hold themselves responsible, but then what they want to be responsible for, like, I don't think I should be telling them that. Right. Uh, but I would like them to at least be, you know, it's a good, better recipe, I think for, for happiness and life satisfaction, thinking like, well, I at least tried to live the life I wanted other as opposed to like, well, life happened and I, I never really got to be um, a participant in deciding how that went. And that sounds like something that actually people in all sorts of classes then could be opening up just a small amount of space for their students to think about their own mental health and well-being in the context of courses and beyond, right? Yeah, I, I think the, the challenge now is how do you do that in a way that's not just like totally trivial where something mm -hmm. just like glides by people and has no impact, but also very even asking people to do a small amount of work every day during like midterms is just like super painful and anxiety provoking for them so what's the right level of interaction where people feel supported it's they have to put a little work in to get something out of it but for it not just to be like one more thing that the university is doing to us or that my employer is doing to me to stress me out mm -hmm. um in, in a formal meditation class you would get way more stressed before you got stress relief because you come into contact with the suffering you've been deeply committed to avoiding <laughs> but i don't know if we're going to build that into like a, you know an intro physics class or something like that so then what's like the right level of of engagement and then if people get something there and they're hungry for more and they want to commit more time and create a space where that's going to be okay for them like not during exams um maybe that that can happen but what's what's that first like what's, what's the thin edge of the wedge to get people um into that sort of living an intentional life, uh, I find just a fascinating question. So that's what lights me up right now. Yeah, great. And then how do you see your teaching developing as you go forward? What would you like to teach next or in the future around helping students access the powers and pitfalls of contemplative sciences? Um, yeah, I'd like to uh, help students feel like they're curiosity that got them into taking a psychology class is more important than like their grades mm -hmm. <laughs> in some way um, without, you know, <laughs> making them fail out. So yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to find ways of um, building into like a, a standard university curriculum um, you can, how, what's the right, you, I mean, I, I can motivate people cause I can pay them with marks. Right. So then what's the best, what's the best return on investment? Uh, and if I paid too many marks just for participation, then other people will be like, oh, you're just, it's great inflation. Da, 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 da. So there's other tensions there too. So it's like, so let's say I have 10 marks that I can pay students with to do what I want in a, in a class. Uh, that's ostensible, that's at least like in the ballpark of the curriculum. So it's a normal psych class or happiness class. So I can give them, I can pay them to do something around those topics. Well, what's the best uh, way to use, use that? Is it just like discussion board posts? Is it making them participate in like an online trial where they're asked to do attention practices sometimes and other times not, and then debriefing as a, a learning exercise. We just tried that this year. Mm -hmm. um, is it about making them do journal entries every, every week about self care or just about how things are going or about, um, uh, how they could be more connected with others or give them like a topic each week. There's a lot, there's so many things to, to play with. Uh, and, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just every, every term I get feedback on whatever we did the term before and we make a new experiment <laughs> and yeah. it just keeps on unraveling. And hopefully my, my hope is like in another few years, I'll have at least like a package of, of things I could go to like the university administration with and say like, Hey, here's things we can do essentially for free like we can have like a, a site license to use this quest online questionnaire company and then you know uh, students can will or 
70%, 80% of students will report benefits even if we can't get them all and it, it will cost them like a minute a day. So I'm trying to find that that sweet spot um, that makes like a policymaker think, oh yeah, this might be actually useful and it might make me look good as the policymaker mm-hmm. and where the students say like, yeah, this was actually more useful than stressful for us and it wasn't just like a make work thing. Um, and that's kind of the game we're playing in the next couple of years. And towards the wonderful goal though of building a more conscious and more present group of people who are choosing their own paths. Uh, Totally. And getting back to what you asked about at the very start, underneath that is this feeling of community, right? Like, oh, the university cares about how I feel and they want to empower me to take care of myself. So I'm not just like on my own. It's not just me versus U of T, which by second year, if you read like the Reddit forums, it's like isolation. Uh, How am I going to survive this? Like no one cares about me. Um, and you know, if, if the, if the context for interaction is always one of evaluation or with the potential for rejection, that's the feeling you get. So yeah, that has to be there. Like the university has to rank people. It has to hold people accountable for learning and it doesn't only have to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to be people's moms or dads, but it doesn't have to be like no support either. Like where does the community feeling come from and can it be built into our our coursework or, or the undergrad experiences? I think super exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. I think you're really building a more compassionate university, which is ultimately, I think, a really productive and positive space for all of us. So thank you so much. Yeah, sounds good. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Thanks to Norm for sharing so much with us that day and for speaking so honestly about his teaching and his research. We wish you well as you continue to learn and grow as a teacher. Thanks so much to all of you for listening and being here with us for this conversation. For reference to the resources that we discussed in this episode, please check our show notes. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, The Circled Square. This has been a really rich conversation, and we'd love to hear more from you about the links between teaching about Buddhism and teaching with Buddhist practices like mindfulness and teaching in the contemplative sciences. So please reach out. We'd love to to hear from you. Find us on Facebook, send us an email, let us know about your teaching practice or your questions related to teaching Buddhist studies. A very big special thanks to our creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, who's in charge of making these podcasts here in Toronto. And thank you for listening. Be well.